0: In 1994, when the O.J. Simpson case was playing on basically every television set in the United States, there was another much more bizarre case unfolding in Los Angeles. One that I can't remember ever discussing. Yet it's one of the most bizarre murder and fraud cases I've ever heard of. This story started on April 16, 1988, in Glendale, California, when Dr. Richard Boggs, a Harvard-educated neurologist, called 911 and said that one of his patients had collapsed at his office. The doctor told the police that the patient, 46-year-old Melvin Eugene Hansen, known as Gene, had been coming to him for years. He said that Gene owned a clothing store and was based in Columbus, Ohio. But he said Gene still came to him for occasional doctor's visits when he was in the area. The story that Dr. Boggs gave the police was that Gene didn't like going to hospitals. So one night after Gene had been drinking... Dr. Boggs said that Gene started having chest pains and called him at around 5 a.m. So they met at the office and Dr. Boggs hooked Gene up to the EKG machine. He said that while he was out of the room doing some paperwork, he heard a sound that sounded like something heavy dropping. And that by the time he got back to the examination room, Gene had collapsed and it appeared to Dr. Boggs that Gene had had a heart attack. Dr. Boggs said he called 911, but said that the line was busy. So he said he then started CPR and kept doing it for around 40 minutes before calling emergency services again. This time, at around 7 a.m., the call went through. Detectives were suspicious of Dr. Boggs' story for several reasons. They checked the EKG tape. The last reading on that machine had been at around midnight. And yet the doctor was saying that he hadn't called 911 until around 6 a.m. So they asked, what was going on in that office during those six hours? They had no way of knowing that what appeared to be a man who died of natural causes would suck them into a world involving a multimillion-dollar fraud, a con man known as the Playboy fugitive, and a wild international manhunt, plus a plot that involved fake death, sex, drugs, and stolen money. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Detectives investigating the strange death of Gene Hansen had some questions about the crime scene. It's funny how the officer who responds to the scene can have such a massive effect on what happens next. One of the officers who came to the scene, Sergeant James Lowry of the Glendale Police Department, told the TV show Forensic Files that he took one look at the body and was immediately suspicious. Police noticed a couple of things. First of all, that the body seemed to be in a more advanced state of decomposition than the time indicated. In other words, rigor mortis seemed to be set in. The body was already stiff. They also wondered why a neurologist would be treating heart patients. And also, Sergeant Lowry pointed out that Dr. Boggs didn't look like a man who had been performing CPR for 40 minutes. CPR is a lot more difficult than you see on TV— It involves massive effort and strength, and you basically have to crack through the ribs to get to the heart. Yet Dr. Boggs' appearance was pretty pristine. Police found Gene's credit cards and a copy of his birth certificate on the body. The coroner said the temperature of the body was 87 degrees, which seemed lower than it should have been given what Dr. Boggs said was the time of death. The body cools at around one and a half degrees per hour. But as true crime fans know, Estimating time of death is definitely not an exact science. The coroner did do more testing, but found there was no sign of a struggle or of any kind of sexual assault. So in the end, the coroner's report listed Gene's cause of death as nonspecific myocarditis, heart disease. Basically, they ruled that the death was due to natural causes. This was in the time before DNA testing. So... It seems that the police who came to the scene relied on the doctor's identification of the body. After all, he knew the victim personally, and he was a physician and a respected member of the community. He also had a brother who worked in law enforcement. But some of the police were wondering if the real reason the doctor had been inviting people to his office after hours was for some kind of sexual tryst. They would later find sex toys and other unusual things in his exam drawers. But at the time, there was just nothing concrete to base their feelings on. And Gene did seem to have heart disease. The next day, a 26-year-old, handsome young man named John Hawkins showed up. He introduced himself as the executor of the will and Gene's next of kin. He had a copy of the will with him, and everything seemed to be in order. John Hawkins had the body cremated very quickly, like within 24 hours. And Farmer's Insurance paid out the claim, $1 million to John Hawkins. John Hawkins was a mysterious character to say the least. Actually, in this case, every single person could be their own podcast episode or some of them could be entire podcast series. The first thing that everyone, men and women, noticed about John Hawkins was that he was drop dead gorgeous and that he had this way of seducing people. John Hawkins was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. He was super close to his mom, Jackie, who was a dealer in Vegas. After graduating from high school in 1980, John headed to California. He bounced around and did some welding work, but this wasn't really glamorous enough for him. He seemed to have big dreams of becoming a star. A friend told Vanity Fair that they believed John was inspired by Richard Gere's character in the movie American Gigolo. John had the gorgeous looks and the charm. He got a big break when he met Steve Rebell, the infamous club owner who ran Studio 54 in New York City. He relocated to New York, and Steve gave him a job. Officially, John was a bartender, but he got assigned to the backroom, VIP section, and under the table, he sold pills to the rich and famous. That was around the time that he met a guy who would change his entire life, Dr. Richard Boggs. Now, at the time when their lives intersected, Dr. Boggs was going through his own personal issues, which we'll get to in a minute. But Dr. Boggs had gone from being a respected member of the community and Seventh-day Adventist church member to getting a reputation for partying with young guys and being fast and loose with his prescriptions, according to Los Angeles Times. People in the doctor's office complex could smell chemicals through the walls. He kept weird hours, and rumors spread that the doctor was making meth. Anna Bardock wrote in Vanity Fair about a guy who described himself as a hustler and said that he had dealings with Dr. Boggs. She wrote that he, quote, told investigators that Boggs initially paid him $100 a trick and that later Boggs would trade drugs, syringes, and prescriptions for sex. He claims that Boggs enjoyed inflicting pain during rough sex, end quote. Meanwhile, John Hawkins was living a double life too. He seemed to be a successful businessman, but his real source of income was always being a high-priced escort, mainly to wealthy men. At the same time, he was also a total womanizer, according to his friends, even though for a while he had a longtime girlfriend, an actress who was on the soap opera Another World. Her name was Alana Missy Hughes. John always kept his life compartmentalized, so his gay friends thought it was insane that anyone could believe he was straight. After all, he was a known hustler. But his straight friends were shocked that he would have had sex with men, since he seemed to be such a womanizer. He seduced men and women, and in 1982, he was flown to London by a member of the Saudi royal family to party with him. John met Gene Hansen in 1981, and as he did with so many people, it seemed that John changed Jean's life immediately. Gene pretty much seemed to fall madly in love with John and want to do anything for him. Now, Gene was from Florida. The part of North Florida, actually where my family lives, it feels like South Georgia. It's still very much part of the Deep South. Gene's family mainly lived in Jacksonville. He went to FSU, and his mom told Vanity Fair reporter Anna Bardock that Gene had a fairly normal life. He spent some time in the Army, but ultimately ended up as a shoe buyer in Atlanta. His colleagues say that he had great work ethic and was really good at his job. But all that time, he was hiding a secret. He was gay and apparently very conflicted about when and how he should come out. But after he met John Hawkins in 1981, like almost everyone else, he was totally blown away by this handsome young man. John had this charisma and this magnetism everyone talks about. This ability to be able to get people to go with whatever he wanted. But after doing a deep dive into John Hawkins and reading a lot about him, it seemed like even more than that. It seemed like he was really able to tap into whatever people wanted, figure out their secret desires, and then kind of show them how to manifest them. They were introduced by a mutual friend, Cecil Tanner, and Gene always protected John. He always referred to him as this incredible person and his friend. Even though the two men moved in together and were in a relationship, he never really talked about him as his life partner or lover when he talked to reporters. Friends said that even though Gene knew about all the men that John hooked up with for money and all the women he dated, he was totally devoted. They were an odd couple, John was this fast-talking, super-hot, buff gym guy, and Gene was this middle-of-the-road, middle-aged retail shoe salesman. But by 1984, Disco was dead, and John was moving on from Studio 54. So it was around this time that he talked Gene into going into business with him. They started a company, and John needed seed money. So according to media reports, once again, he took money for sex. The reporter, Anna Louise Bardock, did a massive investigation. She wrote two articles in Vanity Fair called The Murder Hustle and The Murder Hustle Part 2. She wrote that John also pulled other scams like hiring movers. Then he would arrange to take them to lunch while the trucks had stuff on them and then have someone else steal that stuff. Then the moving company paid him just over 100 grand. After a few scams, John and Jean had their seed money. John had this idea for a line of athleisure wear. Actually, it was a really good idea, and he was very ahead of his time. The company was called Just Sweats. Once he and Gene had their funding, they opened the store in 1985. Gene had the retail experience, and John had the vision. He sold health, exercise, and fitness, which were exploding in the 80s. This was the era of Jane Fonda workouts and aerobics and gym memberships. This was when going to the gym became sexy, and the business started booming they got some legitimate funding through a national shoe company. By 1988, they had stores all over the country and $8.5 million in sales. John, with his drop-dead gorgeous looks, was the face of the brand. He was the Just Sweats guy, and he starred in a lot of their TV ads. Gene had the actual experience. Things looked great on the surface, but like with a lot of red-collar cases, things behind the scenes were in turmoil. The company was expanding fast, By 1987, John and Jean were running a successful company. They had 22 stores around the country. And it seems that at this point, John absolutely could have gone legit, but they overspent. They blew tons of money. They expanded too quickly, and they seemed much more concerned about their appearances, taking lots of cash out of the business to buy luxury cars and party, than in building a legacy. They owed creditors a ton of money, and they had no way to pay. Plus, everyone said John loved the hustle. He seemed to love scamming people almost as much as he loved the actual money. He was greedy. And he wanted to find something that would set him up for life. So they came up with a plan. Gene would fake his own death. So Just Sweats was having financial problems. John wanted out without having to pay his creditors, and also a way to be set financially for life. So John and Jean made a plan to fake Jean's death. And John's cohort, Dr. Richard Boggs, would be cut in on the deal too. Dr. Boggs would provide a body from a medical school who looked like Jean. Then they would pretend it was Jean who had died. John would identify the body and then later have the body cremated, then they would split the insurance money. So John and Jean needed to set this up. John told everyone at the company that Gene had a heart problem. At the time, there were also rumors going around that Gene may have AIDS. And to make the story more believable, according to media reports, Gene started appearing sick on purpose. He grew out his hair, so he looked more haggard. Then Gene started behaving kind of erratically. He told the accountant that he would start signing the checks. Then while the accountant was away, in January of 1988, Gene took $1.8 million from Just Sweats and fled. John tracked Gene down in L.A., and by the time he came back to Just Sweats in Columbus with almost all the missing money, he seemed to want everyone to keep quiet. He said he put the money back, that he'd given Gene $243,000 for his share of the company. Then everyone in the company was shocked to learn, just a couple months later, that Gene had died. And as we said, the Glendale Police Department had suspicions about Gene's death. But for a while, the case kind of seemed to be closed. A few months later, Farmers Insurance got in touch with the police. They asked them if they had compared the body to the driver's license photo. It turned out that law enforcement had not taken this step. And not only did the pictures not match, but a thumbprint on the driver's license did not match, according to the TV show Forensic Files. Now police knew that the man who died in the doctor's office after hours was not Gene Hansen. They needed to ID the body. In September, they confirmed that the fingerprints they took from the body were a match to someone else, a 32-year-old bookkeeper named Ellis Green. Then they got a second opinion from another pathologist, who, according to forensic files, noticed discoloration in the body's face and fingertips. This was a sign, they said, of suffocation. But in the meantime... John Hawkins had been able to cash in on a total of $1.5 million in insurance money. The police were also taking a closer look at Dr. Boggs. They got a search warrant and went through the doctor's office in Glendale. They found a stun gun and sex toys in the drawers of the examination room. Now, throughout this case, a lot of commenters have pointed out that the DA may not have pursued this case because the people involved were gay. And in the case of Dr. Boggs, also, because he was supposedly this good citizen. And if police thought anything strange happened, they may have written it off as two gay guys having rough sex that went wrong. But then police found another man, a guy who worked in IT named Barry Pomeroy. Barry had been out on the town when he met Dr. Boggs, and the doctor said that he would give him a free EKG. Barry told the Los Angeles Times, quote, "'At first, I thought he was into some kind of kinky sex, but it just became so intense. I realized he was trying to kill me. End quote. He fought Dr. Boggs off, and incredibly, Dr. Boggs apologized and offered to clean out the cut on his neck. He took Barry home, but later, Barry was really creeped out by this. He decided to report the incident to police. But at the time, according to Vanity Fair, police called it fag on fag crime which I'm repeating because it's really horrific and it just shows how they ignored and treated cases like this. If a straight college woman had made the same report about a doctor taking her back to his office and shocking her with a stun gun and trying to assault her, I think there would have been media outrage. But when it was a sex worker or someone gay or from a marginalized community, the response, sadly, could be very different. So now police knew that Gene Hawkins wasn't the guy who'd been cremated. And police needed to figure out where he was. Again, it was the insurance company that kind of pushed things along. Farmer's Insurance had hired a private investigator by this point. He dug through Gene's garbage, which, by the way, is one of the best methods for figuring out where someone is. It was especially effective back then, before online banking, but it still works today. As a private investigator, I have done lots of cases where we have pulled up in a van and gotten someone's trash and gone through it. It's disgusting, but extremely effective. In this case, the insurance company took another step that was very unusual. The PI, Vince Volpe, filed charges on behalf of Farmers Insurance against John Hawkins and Gene Hansen for a theft by deception. And they actually managed to kind of circumvent law enforcement. They got an APB put out by U.S. Customs. It seemed like they were trying to force law enforcement to take action, and it did seem to work. The LA County Coroner's Office changed Ellis Green's cause of death from natural to undetermined. Now, this whole time, by the way, Dr. Bogg said he had no idea that this man wasn't Gene Hansen. He said this was the patient he had always known as Gene Hansen. But now there was a new officer on the case. His name was John Perkins. He would go head to head with John Hawkins and Gene Hansen and go to extraordinary lengths to uncover the scams over the next few years. Eventually, He made it his life's mission. Early on, he found evidence that Dr. Boggs had faked his EKG dates, according to court records. And the way that he did this was by grabbing the tape that the EKGs are printed out on and comparing the ends. And he found that where the doctor had torn them, the edges matched up perfectly. It was very low-tech CSI, but it worked because he was able to figure out the doctor gave all those tests on the same date, and he would say they were on different dates. Dr. Boggs was arrested, but now investigators needed to figure out why he had done this. And again, if the man who had been killed was Ellis Green, where was Gene Hansen? What was his connection to this? Dr. Boggs was educated at Harvard, and according to his friends and colleagues, he was a brilliant neurologist. He had a ton of promise. He drove a Rolls Royce, lived in a mansion, and was a married father of four in the 70s. He created a company called Satellite Health Systems, which actually was one of the first HMOs in the U.S. So for a few years, Satellite seemed to be doing really well. The company was growing. But Dr. Boggs eventually seemed to sacrifice patient care and focus on making money. By the mid-70s, he was in serious financial trouble. In 1977, he filed for his first bankruptcy. And behind closed doors, Dr. Boggs was also leading a secret double life, He was gay, and after his divorce, he spent a lot of time on the club scene and was into what many people referred to as intense S&M sex. There were a lot of young men around, and his receptionist told reporters that the crowd that he started to hang around with was a little shady. There were also a lot of drugs. Dr. Boggs, by this point, had lost his hospital privileges. And, especially after his divorce, he started partying hard. He was supplying pills and prescriptions for money. He lost his regular patients. he's hanging out with a crowd of young, attractive men, and a lot of them, according to some of his old colleagues, were doing really shady things. He owed a lot of money to a lot of people, and he would do things like owe the IRS a lot of money, borrow money from friends, and then never pay the friend back. And he allegedly turned to selling drugs during this time. It seemed like selling the drugs was a way to make money, but it was also a way to kind of keep him in with this young crowd. He was also doing things like running a sleep clinic, which, again, is bizarre for a neurologist, but sources told the media that this was really just a way for him to prescribe more tranquilizers. The Los Angeles Times did a very thorough investigation into Dr. Richard Boggs, and if you're curious about him, and again, he could be a whole podcast by himself, I really suggest you check it out. They said that pharmacists over the years had questioned the amounts that Dr. Boggs was prescribing. He had several complaints against him, but those complaints kinda went away because unless there was legal action, they were expunged from the records after three years. So the LA Times reporter couldn't find them. Like with so many things in medicine, when doctors misbehave, a lot of it seems to be done in secret. When police searched Dr. Boggs' home, they found a bathtub full of past due bills. But after Ellis Green's death, Dr. Boggs, Jean, and John split the insurance money as they planned. Dr. Boggs went back to his practice, Gene took his share of the money, went into hiding in Mexico, and started using the name Wolfgang von Snowden. John also took his share and ran. When John left town, he just took his share of the money, threw it in a suitcase, drove his Mercedes convertible to the airport, and then disappeared. John started using the name Bradley Bryan and some other aliases. And soon, he seemed to go back to his old scams. He was partying in clubs in Miami. A few months later, the company just sweats filed for bankruptcy. John and Dr. Boggs were both charged with criminal theft. And this is when John Perkins with the Glendale Police Department took on the case. He told Vanity Fair quote: This is a tale of two hustlers. John Perkins went deep on this case. He was determined to find John Hawkins. It's obvious from interviews that this case was deeply personal. John Hawkins, as we said, was using a lot of different names at this point. He was still back to his old tricks, seducing women. He picked up a woman who described herself as a topless dancer at Venice Beach, and she spent what she would later tell police was the best three days of her life with him. According to Vanity Fair, she called that time a sexual lost weekend. John made his way to St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, came back to the U.S., went to Washington, D.C., and he rented an apartment just long enough to buy a fake identity. Then, on December 31st, 1988, he flew out of JFK. He made it to Amsterdam, where he befriended a young, handsome man. The man's brother, Mick, was friendly with John too. He told Vanity Fair that the relationship was a close friendship, it was a bromance, not a relationship. In fact, he said that the man he knew as Brad, actually John Hawkins, taught him and his brother how to have more confidence with women, and again, just confirmed everyone's description, said that this man was a magnet. Mick talked about how he became friends with John and how everyone wanted to be around John, the man they all called Brad. Mick even started traveling with him. Meanwhile, Gene Hansen had extensive plastic surgery in Mexico, all under the name Wolfgang von Snowden, which, by the way, is not a great choice for an alias. A lot of people, when they're picking an alias, do this, I'm always fascinated by it. You would think that if someone was going to pick an alias, they would pick a name that's very common, like John Smith. But they never seem to. They pick these esoteric names. So Gene Hansen was Wolfgang von Snowden. It's a very obvious name. And also, he made his middle name Eugene, Wolfgang Eugene von Snowden. He didn't speak German, and Gene misspelled his alias. He would mash it up into one word, or he would use S-C-H-O in one version, S-N-O in another. The plastic surgery apparently looked pretty good and took years off Gene's face. He told the surgeon, by the way, that he wanted to look completely different. And he also reportedly had hair transplants. But Gene was arrested at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport on January 29, 1989. Dr. Boggs was arrested a few days later. Police found that Gene was carrying Ellis Green's driver's license on him. He also had $14,000 in undeclared cash. Now, he later told reporters that he was kind of relieved to have gotten caught. The fact that he was carrying Ellis Green's ID and using it to make hotel reservations was basically a smoking gun. Interestingly, John Hawkins was also supposed to get plastic surgery to alter his face, but he was apparently so vain and narcissistic and so in love with the way that he looked that he couldn't bring himself to do that. So in the end, the looks that had allowed him to get away with so much throughout his whole life were about to be his downfall. While Dr. Boggs and Gene Hansen were going through the legal process, John was spending his days working out and hanging with his friends and his nights out at cafes and clubbing. He told his friends that his father was in the mafia and that he was afraid to testify against the mob bosses, so he needed to get a new identity and disappear from all databases forever. He made it sound like he was hiding from some kind of financial crimes, so his friends had no idea that he was wanted for murder. Mike, the guy who John met in Amsterdam and who was traveling with him, talked to the Vanity Fair reporter. He said that one night after they watched the movie Dead Poets Society, John renamed his boat the Carpe Diem. So now the case that everyone had kind of ignored, the case that had been under the radar, became this massive media story. It was featured on true crime shows, including Unsolved Mysteries and The Oprah Winfrey Show, and later on the Forensic Files episode Mistaken for Dead. But the big break in the case was when America's Most Wanted did the story in 1990. John Perkins cooperated with John Walsh on the show, and they both made it their mission to track John Hawkins down. But it was Detective Perkins who really thought outside the box on this case. Some police officers shy away from media exposure, but in this case, we can really see that when cooperation between police and the press is done in a smart way, the results can be extraordinary. And again, with America's Most Wanted, sometimes these shows can be a double-edged sword— Police love them and hate them because they can bring in a lot of good tips, but they can also bring in a lot of bogus information. And they can lead police on these wild goose chases because of these false sightings. So police know that they can waste a lot of man hours that way. It's a decision that has to be carefully considered. In addition to the media outreach, Detective Perkins went back to the evidence. He found John Hawkins' little black book and started calling people. There were some very powerful Hollywood people in that little black book, some people who did not want their names being attached to this hustler, John Hawkins. So they started talking to Detective Perkins. One guy he called, described in the magazine article as a Hollywood mogul, said that John Hawkins had vitiligo, a skin condition that causes unevenness in skin tone. And John Hawkins had it in his genital area. So this person told Detective Perkins that they referred to John Hawkins' sex organ as a palomino dick. Again, all the people that John Hawkins had slept with over the years had this piece of information that was going to turn on him and come back to bite him. So from that point on, according to Vanity Fair, Detective Perkins, when he would get a caller, would say, would you please describe his penis for me, talking about John Hawkins. This way, if he was talking to people who claimed they had hooked up with John, he could weed out the time wasters from the genuine tips. And doing it through penis identification has to be one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard about in any investigation. But then the story has another strange twist. John's boat was broken down on a small island off the coast of Italy when he saw a woman who some of his friends described as more plain-looking than his usual tall, blonde, stacked, movie star-looking type. According to his friends, though, he genuinely seemed to fall in love with this woman. He decided to stay for a while. And there were a couple of times over his years on the run where he almost got caught. Once on New Year's Eve, a Just Sweats employee recognized him. He tried to say, you've got the wrong guy, I'm not John Hawkins, but the employee clearly wasn't buying it and knew who he was. But he managed to slip away. Meanwhile, Dr. Richard Boggs' trial had begun back in California. In 1990, he was found guilty of first-degree murder, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In another dramatic twist, Dr. Boggs told the jury at sentencing that he was gay. He came out right there in court. He said Gene had blackmailed him, basically that Gene had killed Ellis Green in his office. Of course, he said that was while he was out of the room for a minute. And this actually seemed to get some sympathy for the jury. They didn't give him the death sentence. In the recreations of this story, by the way, we always see the detectives in a sweaty office with their sleeves rolled up, and then you see that juxtaposed with shots of John Hawkins sailing around the world and picking up beautiful women. In addition to the forensic files and Oprah and America's Most Wanted, the case was made into a TV movie called If Looks Could Kill back in the 90s, starring Antonio Sabato Jr. in the title role as John Hawkins. It was a pretty cheesy movie, and I thought when I was watching it, it was pretty cheesy, and it showed John Hawkins as a womanizer, I saw the movie before I read about John Hawkins, and I thought it seemed kind of over the top. But honestly, after reading John's friends' descriptions of him and how he was with women, I think it was pretty spot on. Also on America's Most Wanted, Detective Perkins and John Walsh apparently made the decision to put all of John Hawkins' secrets out there, so all the women he dated over the years found out that he was bisexual. And when they called in tips, Some of them were just as pissed off about the fact that he cheated on them with men as they were about the murder. More and more, the life that John had so carefully compartmentalized was beginning to fall apart. After an international manhunt that lasted three years, John Hawkins was finally arrested on the northern coast of Sardinia. He was on a 50-foot luxury catamaran with a date. But incredibly, even after he was in police custody, he almost talked his way out of it again Detectives thought he was still using the name Bradley Bryan, but police found he was carrying an Irish passport in the name of Glenn Donald Hewson. He insisted to police that this was just mistaken identity. They had the wrong guy. So they were kind of in a deadlock because police wanted proof this guy was actually John Hawkins. And as we already know, he's a very good liar. Meanwhile, the tabloids had a field day with the headlines. American Gigolo in Costa, the mystery of the yuppie assassin, playboy killer. Then there were more headlines. John had attempted to take his own life. Some sources were more cynical about that. They said the reason he did that was to get a private cell. And the authorities gave him one. Then shortly after that, he filed down the bars on that cell and tried to escape by jumping out of a window. In the end, a guard heard him and he was stopped. He also tried his charm in court. He said he wasn't really trying to escape. He just really didn't want to go back to America. He wanted to stay in Italy. John's story, what he told his friends, and claimed publicly, was that he'd been betrayed. He said he always believed that Gene and Dr. Boggs were going to be using a medical school cadaver. He insists he never knew anything about the murder. Detective Perkins has said that he believes John Hawkins knew everything. He pointed out that John Hawkins had a history of fraud. Then there were the phone records, showing that Dr. Richard Boggs had called John Hawkins multiple times on April 16th the day of Ellis Green's murder. Once they went to trial, the jury would finally hear what really happened to Ellis Green in the early morning hours of April 16, 1988. Dr. Boggs and the real Gene Hansen had picked Ellis up at a North Hollywood bar called Rawhide. They talked him into coming back to the office. Ellis Green had been drinking a lot that night. He was later found to have a blood alcohol level of 0.28. Once they were back at the office, Dr. Boggs attacked him with a stun gun and then suffocated him with Gene's help. There were some questions about the cause of death. The prosecutor said that it was suffocation, but other publications have suggested that Dr. Boggs could have rigged up an EKG machine that was specially intended to shock his patients, which is like something out of a nightmare, and they had no body to run more tests. In the end, this was a very complicated case. Prosecutors had to go with what they could prove. Dr. Boggs and Gene each got life in prison without the possibility of parole. John was found guilty of the lesser charge of conspiracy to commit murder, insurance fraud, and grand theft. He got a sentence of 25 years to life. Dr. Boggs died in prison on March 3, 2003. He had pancreatic cancer, and he'd also been living with HIV for several years. He was 63. After serving 20 years of his sentence, John Hawkins was released in 2014. He told the news channel, KCAL9, after his release, quote, I thought I was on top of the world, but I was a guy with a lot of character flaws, end quote. John later told the news channel that Gene had been ready to sell his shares for $2 million. John said he didn't have the money to buy him out. The end of the fiscal year was coming, and they were getting desperate. He did an interview with a local news station, 10TV, who reported that after John's release, He was living with his mother at a trailer park in San Diego. He said, quote, This wasn't the first go-round on insurance fraud for either of us. This was a pattern in my life that started when I was a kid, to take shortcuts to get the things I wanted, end quote. But he continues to insist that he had no idea that anyone would be murdered. He said he was in on the insurance scam, but again, he thought the body would be already dead. He said that he's now found purpose working with troubled teens while he was behind bars. Now, he says, he just wants to make amends for what he's done. In 2012, he wrote a book, The Dirty Nasty Truth, 18 True Crime Stories to Stop Juvenile Delinquency. While he was incarcerated at Donovan State Prison, John participated in a program called Convicts Reaching Out to People. And as a part of that, he spoke to teens. The idea behind the program is that by telling teens the truth about what happens to you if you pursue a life of crime, it could help deter them. But... This is a guy who's also described himself on multiple occasions as a narcissist. So I'm wondering, is this a genuine desire to lend a helping hand to the community? Or could this all been part of a cynical ploy for early release by targeting vulnerable teens and their parents? After all, those multiple letters of support did help him get out of jail five years early. I actually read John Hawkins' book and I have to say, I'm not convinced that he's completely on the straight and narrow because He could have come clean about the hustling he did, the temptation of wanting this extreme wealth, and being so close to it that he was willing to do anything to get it. Instead, his explanation really seems like a way to sort of get him off the hook. He said he was conned by his partner, who by the way he never mentions was his lover, and by Dr. Boggs. He said in the book that Dr. Boggs, to his knowledge, was an esteemed physician. And he makes it sound like there was no way he could have known there was anything shady about this man. He doesn't mention the fact that for years, Dr. Boggs had been providing him with quaaludes and other drugs to sell. He said the only reason why he ran was because of his horror over the murder and the fact that he was afraid of being arrested for insurance fraud. He did talk about his feelings about the victim, Ellis Green, who he called Eddie White, after learning that he died of suffocation. He wrote, quote, I recall the time as a kid when I had been trapped underwater and thought about the terror and pain associated with not being able to breathe. Suffocation is a horrific way to die. I was responsible for Eddie's agony and suffering." Some people don't buy that story, and Detective Perkins is one of them. He told Vanity Fair that he thinks that John was the mastermind and that actually he believes there would have been more victims. He pointed out that Gene had another guy around the same age as John and with a very similar look hanging out with them in Miami Beach before they got busted. He thinks that Gene and John planned to kill this guy and make it look like John had died so they could collect even more money. He pointed out that John had also taken out a million-dollar insurance policy with Gene as the beneficiary. So if John died and Gene was dead already, Detective Perkins believes that their friend Cecil Tanner would get the insurance payout. Detective Perkins is still around. He retired from law enforcement and is now a private investigator based in Glendale. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?